guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quarkcast Nation, welcome back. We are in full effect and really excited to bring this episode to you. We got Dr. Philip Ovadia cardiac surgeon that has transitioned his clinic to be virtual to improve metabolic health for, for his patients. Um, and what I love about this is it's scalable. Uh, he talks about how passionate he is of, on preventing people from landing on his operating table. You hear us talk about this all the time, how metabolic health lands you in ICU and so forth, worsening COVID outcomes, for example. He's seen it. He's lived it, and he's trying to make a difference. And his story is quite remarkable. He was talks about being overweight and uh, losing 100 pounds when transitioning to low-carb and carnivore, what difference it made in his life, and, and wanting to really recreate that for people all around him. And like I said, he's making a difference. He's an author. The name of his book, Staying Off My Operating Table. He's got a podcast, which you'll hear about, too. Just a remarkable human being. Got to connect with him at the Metabolic Health Summit, which was gangster. It's fantastic. So really excited to bring him in the mix. Just a little plug, Solving Wellness folks, check out our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash groups backslash Solving Wellness. That's our free community. Go to solvingwellness.com for our page service where you get the online workouts, yoga sessions, stress management tips, mindful meditation, get it all. And uh, like like we said many a time, we're trying to change the boogie. You know what I'm saying? All right. So without further ado, let me bring Dr. Philip Avadia. Quadcast Nation, we have a very special guest. We got Dr. Phil Avadia, cardiac surgeon. I This gentleman, I'm really proud of, not only because of his personal story, but how he is changing the landscape of, of people's health, people's metabolic health, thinking outside the box 
to get us all healthier. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you, Claude. You know, this is uh, really exciting for me. Um, we we recently connected, you know, first on social media and then uh, fortunately in person, we were at a meeting together and I just love the uh, energy that you're bringing to this. And I love uh, seeing, you know, the new physicians that are coming to the metabolic health space and, and coming into the conversation and, you know, all these different specialists that are realizing the importance of metabolic health and how we as physicians should be better serving our patients by not managing their disease, but by actually helping them to get healthy. Yes. I, I get just hearing that gets me so excited because it's, it's, it's a pivot. It's a change of perspective. It's, Hey, yeah, let's not stop thinking about just managing your metabolic issues, your diabetes, your hypertension. Let's fix them. Let's resolve them. Let's get you back into where you need to be. Like this is the, the, the change in perspective that more of us need to have. So honestly, it, it's exciting to, to, to have this conversation with you and maybe a good place to start is just your, your personal story with metabolic syndrome, because I think um, hearing your story, it really gives perspective on why you're so passionate about this. Yeah. So, you know, my personal and my professional uh, uh, stories certainly have uh, merged, I would say over the past few years, but you know, on the personal side of things, I, struggled my entire life with obesity. I was overweight as a child. Um, and this was despite the fact that, you know, my, me and my family uh, were following the standard advice. I was very active as a child. I played sports year round. I rode my bike places and walked places. And our household, um, you know, ate according to the U.S. dietary guidelines. Uh, important to note, I have an older brother who's a type 1 diabetic, so we had no sugar in the house. Um, we had all of the low-fat, you know, skim milk and margarine instead of butter, and, you know, we had our um, heart-healthy Cheerios every morning, and uh, despite that, you know, me and my entire family were obese. And, you know, as I went through my medical education, um, I realized what a problem this was. And I tried a number of times to lose weight. I did, you know, exactly what we learned in school. I ate less. I moved more. I counted my calories. I ate a low-fat diet. And I would have some short-term successes, and I would lose some weight, and then I would always gain it back and more. And fast forward, you know, 15 years into my career as a heart surgeon, um, taking care of people, operating on people every day uh, for, you know, these issues. Um, and yet I was struggling more and more with them myself. And I had gotten to a point where I was morbidly obese. Uh, I was pre-diabetic. And I knew that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. And fortunately, at that time, I started to come across some alternative ideas about, you know, why we get unhealthy, why we get obese. Um, I actually was attending a medical conference where Gary Tobbs was the guest uh, speaker. And quite frankly, at first, I was sitting there in the back of the room thinking, 
why, why is there some journalist talking to us at a heart surgery conference? Uh, but, you know, Gary started talking. And of course, you know, he had at that time just written the case against sugar. And prior to that, you know, why we get fat and good calories, bad calories. And what he said made sense. You know, what he talked about that the types of food that we are eating are, uh, a mo- you know, are more important than the amount of food that we're eating and the types of food that we're eating influence the amount of food that we're eating. You know, it all made sense to me. And I read the books and I started eliminating sugar and and processed carbohydrates and processed food. And eventually I was able to lose a hundred pounds. I have now maintained that weight loss for, you know, six years. Um, And I was awakened to the fact, I guess you would say, that, you know, the struggle that I had been going through and the reason that these, you know, all of the things that I had learned in school weren't working for me was the same reason they weren't working for my patients. And I started talking to patients about it and talking, you know, friends and family about it. And they all started having improvements as well. And then I started asking those big questions, like, why didn't I learn this in medical school? Why did I hear this first from a journalist, uh, you know, instead of one of my medical school professors? And, uh, you know, that has really opened my eyes to the failures of our healthcare system and how we have become so focused on just trying to manage disease. We have lost sight of the fact that we can actually reverse and prevent these diseases in the first place. And specific to me as a heart surgeon, I came to realize that almost every patient I was operating on had been failed by the healthcare system. And in the vast majority of cases, um, we could be doing things that would prevent the need for heart surgery. And so that's why I've, you know, kind of added an additional component and refocused my career on helping people to stay off of my operating table. I, oh my goodness, I get goosebumps because, you know, both of us were very adamant on and and passionate about avoiding seeing our patients. And, and like, to put it in perspective, like, like, I talk all the time about how challenging an ICU admission is from, you know, being on a ventilator, the pain, the anxiety, the PTSD, if you survive it, the profound, uh, uh, like, um, deconditioning, you're not the same person when you, you leave an ICU. Going through cardiac surgery ain't no walk in the park. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, you know, one of the things that I, um, you know, have come to grips with, um, you know, I always realized it, but, you know, I've never really, you know, talked about it, is that we know that no matter how good a surgeon I am, no no matter how good all the heart surgeons out there are, you're never as good after the surgery as you would have been if you never needed the surgery in the first place. And we know that the, you know, natural history of heart disease is that once you have open heart surgery, once you have bypass surgery, you are very likely to have future problems, you know, more blockages develop, need surgery again, need stents again, something like that. So even, you know, 
so again, that caused me to step back and question, you know, what are we doing? Um, we're simply putting a Band-Aid on the problem and we're not addressing the root cause. And all of these things that, you know, we have focused on, you know, controlling people's cholesterol and, and you know, taking all the medications and whatever it is, it, it's not preventing them from still having problems, you know, related to the heart disease. So it's time that we start questioning those basic assumptions, you know, about what the root causes are and then starting to address those root causes so that even the people that end up on my operating table don't need to end up back on my operating table. So, I mean, to dive into it a little bit more, Phil, like when you say, like, get to the root cause, like when, when somebody comes for their triple bypass, quadruple bypass, they, they get, they're pre-diabetic and, so, like, what specifically, when you say root cause, what are you referring to exactly? Yeah, so I want to be able to figure out, you know, what is it? What is the factor that caused that patient to get there? Uh, because mm. that then allows us to figure out what can we do to change that factor. And unfortunately, you know, for a long period of time, I think, you know, specifically in the heart disease world, we've been focused on the wrong factor. Um, you know, the singular focus around preventing heart disease is pretty much lowering cholesterol. And mm. while cholesterol is certainly part of the process that leads to heart disease, you know, we see that lowering cholesterol is ineffective. Um, many of the patients that, you know, end up on my operating table. Uh, and again, we have all the scientific studies uh, that show, you know, patients that come in with heart attacks, patients that end up having heart surgery, you know, many of them have what are considered normal cholesterol levels, low to normal cholesterol levels. Some of them because they're taking medications to lower the cholesterol. Some of them just because, you know, they have naturally low cholesterol levels. Some of them have made dietary changes to lower their cholesterol. But whatever it may be, they still end up on my table. And the other curious thing uh, that, you know, I started to encounter more and more as I got into the metabolic health space is that there are lots of people who are walking around with very high cholesterol levels that never develop heart disease. Um, so, you know, we have these outliers, we'll call them, on both sides of the equation. And that caused me to step back and think, okay, maybe it's not all about cholesterol. And then when you really do start digging into the literature around heart disease, you see over and over metabolic health, insulin resistance, diabetes, you know, all of these things, which are, are really, you know, just different ways of looking at the same uh, basic problem. And we see that these are much bigger predictors of the risk of heart disease than LDL cholesterol elevated LDL cholesterol levels are. So that's why it troubles me so much that we don't focus on this and we don't tell people, you know, you need to be reversing your diabetes. Uh, you need to be avoiding it in the first place if possible. Um, your high blood pressure, uh, all of these things we know are reversible now. And with the metabolic health interventions, um, you can reverse these underlying conditions. And that is what is going to give the patient the lowest risk of, you know, developing heart disease in the first place or worsening heart disease if they already have it. Yeah, that's brilliant. So like what I'm hearing from you, Phil, is that, you know, when it comes to root causes, like if you're going to be 80, 20 or most efficient, if you could deal with people's metabolic health, 
overall, you're going to prevent them more likely to prevent them from from getting sick, from landing on your your your, your on your table, landing in ICU, as we talked about. Um, and I, I guess that, that that was something that has been so enlightening to me too, is that we we weren't posing this question enough. Like, what can we do beforehand? And 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 I mean, Phil, you 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 referred to this before. We don't learn this shit in med school, man. We don't learn this shit in residency either. And I, I guess the question is, why why aren't we learning this? Like, I'm what am I? I'm uh, finished residency in 2005, and not till COVID was when I was start to learn about this stuff. And I and I I mean, you and I were talking at the, the summit. That's crazy to have to learn learn some of this content so deep into a into into a career or needing a pandemic to highlight some of this these these concerns. So why do you think we're not we, we don't learn this? Why don't we learn this stuff? Yeah, you know, and that's a big question that uh, keeps uh, coming up for me um, because you know. I finished training right around the same time you did 2005 and it wasn't until 2016 when I stumbled across some journalist, uh, you know, uh, that I heard all this. And then I started learning about learning even more from it from, you know, guys like computer scientists and engineers. And, uh, you know, thankfully I, was also able to tap into the growing community of physicians who talk about this, but this stuff is not talked about. And not only is it not talked about and not taught in schools, it's actively discouraged. Um, You know, I still get a lot of pushback for talking about things, you know, saying things like cholesterol may not be the most important factor in the development of heart disease. Um, You know, that, that, basically ostracizes me from the, uh, you know, mainstream cardiac community. Uh, I'm certainly not going to be invited anytime to the American Heart Association to, uh, you know, give a talk on that or give my perspective and and show the evidence on that. And and the evidence is out there. You know, one of the other things that has sort of distressed me about this whole process as I've gone through it is you go back to the medical literature Uh, And there is plenty of evidence of, you know, all these things that we talk about, you know, specifically, if you want to talk about the relationship between insulin resistance and metabolic health, um, you know, Gerald Reven did extensive work, you know, and published extensively 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Um, You know, at that time, he was calling it syndrome X, uh, but it's now what we call metabolic syndrome. And shows a very clear relationship between the metabolic syndrome and heart disease. Um, And then all of a sudden, and there are lots of other people talking about this in the 1980s. um, And then all of a sudden in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, the entire focus of the heart disease literature switches to cholesterol and specifically LDL cholesterol and lowering LDL cholesterol. And, you know, the only reason that might be, the only reason that I can figure out that that happened was because all of a sudden we had a bunch of drugs that came out that lowered LDL cholesterol. And that became the narrative. Um, But, and, and, you know, I can understand that. 
I can say, great. We thought we had the answer. We thought we had the miracle cure. We got all these medications. But here we are 30 years later. Heart disease is still the number one killer in the United States and worldwide. And it's hard to show that we've had any impact whatsoever um, with that, you know, singular focus on uh, cholesterol. Uh, So, you know, you start to get into the bigger questions about who's really directing you know, what we learn in medical school, who's really controlling what we're able to talk about as physicians. And, um, you know, it it, uh, very quickly, you start to realize that what might be the best interest for the patient is not necessarily the best interest for the healthcare system. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Personally, I, I think it's it's grand that we we're continuing to have these conversations. More more highlights on on reversing metabolic syndrome, and I, I, I think awareness is where we begin. And hopefully, we're all putting a dent on that. You got your book, you got your clinic, which we'll dive into a little bit more. Um, but in terms of your your personal story, you, you gave examples of how you got to to you know, losing a hundred pounds, which you look fantastic by the way, in the flesh. Um, how, uh, like, what are some of the other, what are some of the strategies that come to mind when you, when you're addressing your patients, like when you want to try and reverse their metabolic syndrome, their type two diabetes, what are some of the things that you put on the table? Yeah. So, you know, I try and keep it pretty simple. Um, You know, I don't give people the 28 day, you know, Dr. Ovedia diet plan. Um, But what I do give them is a framework to work within. And, you know, it's pretty clear um, as much as, you know, the diet wars all seem so confusing and there's all this information out there about this is the best diet. This is the best diet. um, You know, when you look for the commonalities among dietary strategies that are successful, it really comes down to eat whole real food first and foremost. Um, You know, processed food continually shows up as, you know, the biggest risk factor for obesity and diabetes. Um, So, you know, I start high level and I try to get patients to really think about, you know, what they are trying to accomplish around their health and not be so focused on short-term goals like losing, you know, X amount of pounds, um, but really trying to get in that mindset of, I want to be healthy. I'm going to find the habits that are going to support my health. And then, you know, those habits really start with, first and foremost, eat real food. I tell people to eat the things that grow in the ground and eat the things that eat the things that grow in the ground. Uh, So, you know, these are your plant products. These are your animal products. The balance between the two, you know, there's there's a lot of latitude there and there are a lot of factors that go into it. You know, where you're starting from, how metabolically broken, you know, or unhealthy you are to start with, what your personal preferences are. Um, But I talk about in the book and, you know, in my practice with the patients I work with, I literally have carnivores and I have vegans and I have lots of things that are in between. Um, and, you know, there are ways to find success with each of those uh, strategies. And, you know, in the end, I focus people on the metrics of metabolic health and getting metabolically healthy. And that's what I think leads to the long-term successes that we are looking for. 
Yeah, Phil, you, you highlight two things that I think uh, really are important. Uh, number one, uh, the emphasis of whole foods. Like, I, I really think that's underappreciated how much junk is in non-whole foods and processed foods and the how rampant whole or uh, processed foods all are all around us. Like, now I look back at my childhood, it's like basically processed. Um, and... The second part that I really think is, is is intelligent approach is the personalization. This is the one thing that often gets overlooked is you got to look at the person or the patient in front of you and, and determine what's going to work best for that patient. Not just, you know, it's, it's not going to be cookie cutter. It's not going to be a recipe that everybody can adopt to. It's not all, you know, all, keto it's not all um plant-based it's it's what you think can work for that patient that's going to lead to success and I, I just think that's another component of 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 this that we need to really embrace moving forward for sure yeah definitely i think one of the you know other places that we've sort of you know gone off the rails in medicine is this concept that Everything should be, um, you know, protocol based and uh, check boxes and guidelines and that every patient is the same and that they're going to respond the same. And we know we, we have to remember we are dealing with human beings. Um, you know, we're not dealing with uh, computers. We're not dealing with automobiles or airplanes that are, you know, the same every time. Uh, as you know, you know, in the ICU, in the OR, there's been, you know, this big emphasis to uh, kind of adopt a lot of the safety standards from uh, the airline industry. And we've got in the checklist and, you know, uh, we see this actually pervasive through medicine. Um, but the difference is, is that when a pilot sits down at the cockpit of a plane, that plane, you know, they know the model of that plane and therefore they know exactly how that plane works. Uh, and it's been finely tuned and it's kept within, you know, uh, all the um, parameters to make it so every time they fly the plane, that plane is going to fly the same. And every time they do whatever movement with the controls, that plane is going to respond the same. But that's not how humans work. Uh, so this concept that we can just have these cookie cutter um, recommendations that should be applied to each and every patient without questioning, without thinking about them um, is, is, you know, nonsensical, really. And it's the antithesis of what medicine is supposed to be. And we as physicians need to start um, fighting back against that because we need to be able to do things individually with our patients and realize that each patient is truly unique and it's our job to figure out, you know, what the best thing for that patient in front of us is. A hundred percent personalized precision based care. This is a future. I mean, you hear me say this on the show all the time, but you know, how do you know, like when we look at a study, and they say aspirin is beneficial in, in this circumstance. This is on average. It's not telling that every person that comes in as a patient that receives aspirin is going to have that positive outcome. And what we don't do in medicine and research enough is asking ourselves, 
which of these patients is most likely to respond to the treatment? Which one is most likely going to respond to low carb? Which one is most likely to respond to, to keto? We need to, that, that, the paradigm needs to shift. We need to ask ourselves, well, the, the person in front of you, how are they going to respond? And what's going to be the best treatment for them? Because I'll tell you, I've seen negative outcomes from protocols when people forget to think. Oh, I'm, you know, I, one of the common ones, Parkland f- formula and burn patients. Oh, I'm supposed to give this much fluid. I'm like, the patient's drowning. Stop the fluid. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just really, it, we need to start thinking outside the box. And, and, and this is exactly where we need to go. Personalized, precision uh, approaches to not only what we're talking about here, metabolic health, but in general, 100%. Um, so I, I wanted to get into your clinic in general. This was the other thing that, like, I, I mean, I feel like we're cut from the same cloth, Phil, because, you know, you 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 acknowledge there's a problem and you are going at it unconventionally different approaches to to try and address these things tell us about a little bit about your your clinic and how you're addressing metabolic health that way yeah sure thing so you know again when i had this realization that i needed to be helping people to stay off my operating table um you know as a heart surgeon I'm not given the ability to do that because patients only come to me at the time that they need heart surgery. Uh, so, you know, I, I was looking for ways to do that. I decided to start a telemedicine practice um, where I can now work with patients before they get to the point of needing heart surgery. Uh, and we focus on metabolic health and lifestyle and dietary interventions to help them avoid the need for heart surgery. And, you know, that's been uh, uh, an interesting journey, um, you know, uh, going from a uh, spending my career as an employed heart surgeon, you know, I always worked for healthcare systems, uh, to going out on my own, starting a practice, starting a telemedicine only practice, which, um, you know, as much as we talk about telemedicine, uh, and as popular, I guess you could say as telemedicine has become, especially with COVID, um, there are still very few telemedicine only practices out there. And there's lots of challenges around the, the licensing and the, you know, the software and all of that stuff. But uh, I've, I've done it. You know, the, the practice has been up and running for about 18 months now. It's been very re- rewarding professionally because, again, I am actually helping patients. Uh, I'm, you know, we are seeing them reverse their diabetes, uh, you know, get off their high blood pressure medications. And we're seeing, you know, uh, improvement in their heart disease. Um, I have patients who are lowering their coronary artery calcium scores, uh, and that's not supposed to be possible, we're told. Uh, so, um, you know, those are, are all uh, very rewarding things, uh, you know, for me personal, for me professionally, and of course, for the patients themselves. And um, it really, you know, is empowering uh, for these patients to learn that they can reverse these conditions, they can improve these conditions, and uh, that they have the control over that. They are the ones that are making the changes that allow them to do that. And what I like, Phil, too, is the the scale. Like you're, you know, you're not having to just be in Florida to to see patients now. You can see them from across the country. 
and impact lives that way. And I think that's a very valuable, underappreciated component of all this. And I'm curious, like, walk me through what it's like to to go through a clinic like that. Because, you know, we were at the Metabolic Health Summit. You're getting all these devices that people might use, CGMs potentially. What is what is kind of the, the roadmap or for potentially for some of your patients? Yeah, so I do, um, you know, certainly leverage some of those technologies. And uh, we, you know, obviously uh, doing all the care remotely, uh, you know, brings up a couple of opportunities uh, to improve the way that care is delivered. Uh, so, you know, patients, um, patients find me in many different ways. You know, I'm active on social media and I have the book and things like that. Um, you know, they, they go through the process. They, they, I have initial sort of calls with them to see if, you know, my practice is right for them and they're, they're right for the practice and they sign up and, um, you know, we have, uh, it's a concierge type model. So we're not dealing with insurance. We don't have the insurance companies in between the patient and I telling us what we can do and how much time we can be spending. Uh, I have, you know, pretty extensive visits with patients. My initial consultations usually run about 90 minutes. Um, Follow-up visits, you know, are 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever they need to be. Um, In between uh, visits, I have a secure messaging platform that the patients use uh, that they they just send me a question and I respond. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of buffers in between me and the patients. Um, you know, I'm in the process now of bringing on some health coaches and stuff to help out with this whole process. And, you know, on some levels, it's very advanced because we are leveraging technologies like the continuous glucose monitor and uh, remote blood pressure monitors that, you know, are reporting back to a dashboard and their scales are connected to my dashboard. And, you know, we're getting all this data from all these technology tools. But on the other hand, it's very old school. It's very much back to the doctor and the patient sitting there together. And yes, we're across the screen, but we are sitting there together and we are having the conversations about, you know, what we need to be doing to improve their health. And I think most patients, you know, find that very uh, refreshing and very different uh, from, you know, what they are used to. And and many of my patients remark to me, you know, why aren't my other doctors like this? Uh, Why aren't their practices like this? And uh, unfortunately, you know, I don't have a good answer for that. But hopefully this is. I mean, this is why we're on doing this is that we, we get the word out. We, we get people's minds percolated and saying, why aren't we creating an environment where I could get access to care like this, reversing my diabetes, my obesity, hypertension, and, and once again, avoid getting sick. And uh, so, yeah, once again, want to throw out, like commend you big time for, for putting this together. I'm wondering if any, do you have a sense of the impact? Like, did you have like a, like a, a story that comes to mind when, when you think about, you know, that 18 months that you've had doing, doing the clinic, like uh, anything come to mind from that perspective? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, uh, certainly the patients who already, you know, within just a year, you know, have 
uh, noticeably, measurably impacted their heart disease. Um, so, you know, the patients who have had CAC scores, coronary artery calcium scans, and we know that the natural history of, you know, coronary artery calcium scans is that they increase 10 to 25% a year. And, you know, one recent patient uh, who, you know, in his early 60s, and he came to me with a elevated coronary artery calcium scan uh, score, and we made the changes. We, you know, uh, over the course of a year, he lost some weight, he got off his blood pressure medications, um, and most importantly, you know, when we got his repeat scan a year later, his coronary artery calcium score had actually gone down 17%. Uh, so that was pretty impressive. And of course, the patient was thrilled. And, you know, it, it's not over. We still need to be following along and, and you know, continuing the changes. Uh, but it's a great impact. And it puts him on the road of not ending up on someone's operating table when previously he was on the road towards, uh, you know, needing some sort of cardiac intervention. And he was very likely to develop a cardiac event, um, you know, uh, and then I, there were just the, the other basic things that I see, you know, almost, you know, they've become routine now that patients come to me and they're type two diabetic and they're on multiple medications and, pretty quickly within a few months, we can usually get them off their medications or significantly reduce their medications with better blood glucose control, you know, lowering hemoglobin A1Cs uh, from 10 and 11 down to five and six, uh, you know, while lowering medications. And these are things that certainly I had never even known was possible as a physician uh, until I started getting into this metabolic health space. I still, I still to this day, exactly as as you put, didn't know this was possible as a physician. I still to this day can't believe some of this that this has escaped uh, our, our our radar. But it's I love hearing those stories. I, I love hearing the you know gra grandma coming off her diabetic meds. I love hearing uh, Uncle Rick coming off their their antihypertensives and, and feeling good and looking good. And it's, it really is remarkable. And, and I, I really think if more people knew about the possibilities that increased awareness, I think we'd get more buy-in. This I actually, I thought we'd see a bit more of this during the pandemic. If I was being honest, I, I really thought, especially pre-vaccines that this, this would be the time to really put a lens on this, but it, I must say, Phil, it, 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 I don't think this got any traction at all, despite many efforts. Yeah, no, that was certainly one of the most disappointing things to me, uh, you know, looking at the pandemic as well. You know, we it was crystal clear early on that poor metabolic health, diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance, however you want to measure it, was the biggest risk factor for not only getting COVID, but getting, you know, sick and complications from COVID. And we had the data from the first days, you know, out of New York, out of Italy, out of China, those first uh, waves, um, that data was very clear. And I, like you said, great, you know, this highlights the problem we have with metabolic health. Everyone should be saying, get metabolically healthy. 
while we work on like, you know, figuring out treatments and, and vaccines and whatever else you want to talk about, let's at least start getting metabolically healthy. And yet we did the exact opposite. We told people to stay in their houses. We closed down all the gyms. We, you know, encouraged, uh, you know, eat, you know, eat comfort foods. Um, here's your free donuts for, you know, uh, getting your vaccine or, or whatever it was. And we did the exact opposite. Our metabolic health got measurably worse in just that short time period. We see the numbers in terms of the explosion of diabetes and obesity, and especially in our young populations, our children, our teenagers. Uh, so we've only set ourselves up for a worse pandemic, you know, down the line. Uh, because the other thing we need to realize is that this was this virus, uh, but there's going to be another virus. And it, these viruses are going to take advantage of the poor metabolic health that is just rampant in our society. And until we address that problem, we're just going to be chasing our tails. 100%. I mean, our, our listeners... I'm not even going to repeat this because I've said it 5,800 times. I, I'll just basically acknowledge that Dr. Phil is on point with this one. Um, couple, uh, couple, uh, quick hidden questions that, uh, that I probably should have asked before. Do you, how much do you put into, uh, any of the above macros, like percentage macros, like, uh, like a protein intake, relative to everything else. How much do you think about uh, time-restricted eating or fasting and, 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 and exercise or movement? How much of any of that do you uh, consider with your patients? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not big on tracking uh, macros, but I do, again, kind of give the framework to patients that protein is the most important part of the diet. And, you know, mm. we need to be sort of... Uh, focused on getting enough protein intake and then constructing the rest of the this dietary strategy around it. Um, intermittent fasting, um, for me, uh, what I talk to patients about is the way that you eat should make you hungry less often. And this really goes back to the protein issue. You know, protein, the more protein you eat, the less hungry you're going to be. Uh, so, when we are eating whole real food um, and when we are prioritizing protein, we just end up being hungry less often. And so then we start intermittent fasting, uh, you know, and I think that's a very powerful strategy, you know, clearly sort of the two big levers that we can um, be pulling in terms of, you know, trying to improve health, trying to lose weight is eating less often and eating better quality food. And one leads to the other. And so for me, it's, it's a perfect, you know, natural uh, kind of synergy there that I talk about with patients. But I usually start with the eat real food, eat high protein. And then as you get hungry, you're going to fast and eat less often. And exercise and activity, I think, are very important. But again, I, I tend to look at them a little differently than I think, you know, the mainstream messaging has been. Um, I believe that our priority should be building and maintaining muscle. We have very good data showing that as you age, the more that you are able to maintain muscle, the longer you live and the better quality of life you are going to have. So 
I ask patients to kind of focus on, you know, resistance exercises, and these can be simple body weight exercises. You know, it can be push-ups, it can be pull-ups, it can be sit-ups, and it can be modifications of those for patients that can't do it. Um, it can just be out walking around. Uh, you know, we seem to forget that, you know, working against gravity is resistance exercise. So I tell patients, you know, instead of taking the elevator, go up the stairs whenever you can, um, you know, uh, use stand-up desks or, or get up, you know, every hour, get up and take a 10-minute walk around your office. Uh, just simple things like this have more of an impact than going to the gym for an hour and run, you know, running or jogging on a treadmill and then sitting around the rest of the day doing nothing. Uh, so that's how I talk to patients around exercise and activity. And I do think it's a very important component of this. But it's also important to realize that plenty of patients lose weight, reverse their diabetes, you know, reverse their high blood pressure, uh, and greatly improve their metabolic health numbers without doing any exercise. It, you know, the food that we eat is the most important factor in this. And so that's what I focus on first and foremost. Amazing. And maybe um, one last thing, I'm, I'm curious. You, I think when we we chat at the at the at the conference, you you were mentioning you go you're a carnivore, if I'm not mistaken, you carnivore diet, and we've never really addressed this on the show. But I, I, maybe even just speak to your personal experience doing the carnivore diet, because you know I won't lie to you. Even when I first heard about this, I'm like, what? You need your fruit and vegetables, you need the fiber, you need your you know micronutrients. You got you need something more holistic. But yeah, I'm interested to hear either how you got onto it and then your experience with it. Yeah. So, you know, I was uh, about, uh, you know, probably three years into my uh, metabolic health journey and I had lost a bunch of weight, uh, you know, and I was feeling good. And I was on, a, I would say at that time, what I would describe as a very low carb keto diet. And uh, one day I came across this crazy orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Sean Baker, uh, talking about oh, yeah. the carnivore diet. And I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, but I, same thing, like you said, I'm like, you can't just survive on just meat, can you? Uh, but, you know, I was curious and I looked into it. And sure enough, you can survive on just meat. And we have historical records of this and we have ancestral populations and, you know, and then, you know, there were plenty of people who were doing it at that time. Um, and so I said, you know, let me give it a try. Nothing's good, you know, nothing to lose 30 days of, uh, you know, carnivore. Certainly I didn't think was going to kill me. So I said, let me give it a try. And it was interesting that I noticed um, two things right away. The first was I had been struggling with plantar fasciitis. And for years, every time I got out of bed in the morning, I put my foot, my right foot on the ground and it hurt and I would hobble around for about 10 minutes and then finally it would kind of work itself out. And I had done all the stuff. I had done the physical therapy. I had taken anti-inflammatories. I had stopped running, you know, all these things, nothing helped it. Um, my third day on the carnivore diet, I got out of bed, I put my foot on the ground and it did not hurt. And it didn't come back again. Uh, so there was something, 
And again, I was eating a very clean keto diet, no sugar, um, you know, just some vegetables and, uh, you know, none of the vegetable or seed oils. Although actually at that time, I probably wasn't as religious about avoiding vegetable and seed oils. And, uh, but whatever it was, something was still triggering that inflammation and the carnivore diet got rid of it. And after 30 days, I felt great. Um, and the other thing that I noticed was I was just not thinking about food anymore. Um, I had spent my whole life, you know, always thinking about what am I going to eat next? You know, what shopping do I need to do? Where do I need to plan? You know, this and that. And the carnivore diet is just simple. You know, you go once a week or, you know, you don't even have to do it that often. You buy a bunch of meat, you get home, you grab something out of the fridge or the freezer, you throw it in a pan for a few minutes, you're eating, there's no cleanup, you're done. And uh, it just it just ended up fitting my lifestyle well. You know, again, being a high protein diet, I'm only hungry, you know, once a day. Uh, and so I only have to eat once a day. And it just fits, you know, it just fits well into my uh, lifestyle. And it was low energy for me in terms of thinking about, you know, what am I going to eat? So I've stuck with it now for uh, over three years. Uh, but, you know, again, that doesn't mean that I think everyone should or needs to be carnivore. I just think it's an option that we need to be uh, presenting to people. So interesting. And, and I asked you this at the, the summer, but just uh, for our, our, our listeners, in terms of like getting enough micronutrients, making sure that you got enough vitamin and minerals, what's your, what's your thoughts on that with that diet? Yeah, it, it really, the evidence is, is that, you know, everything we need is in the meat. Uh, and, you know, there within carnivore, you know, there's a big debate about whether you need to be consuming organs and doing kind of nose to tail versus those people who just say, you know, just eat steak and you'll be fine. Um, I go back and forth on that, but the evidence certainly seems to be the people who are just eating steak and not eating organs are doing just fine. Um, so again, you look back at how we evolved, you look at back at, you know, just the sort of uh, ancestral system that was in place in that the animal eats the grass and the, and the, you know, the roughage and all of that stuff. They, especially ruminant animals with their four stomachs are able to process that properly. All those nutrients end up in their meat and we eat the meat and we get all those nutrients. And, you know, at this point we have a very large population of people who are, you know, doing the carnivore diet. The online communities around the carnivore diet are literally in the tens of thousands. And we're not seeing people end up with, you know, these deficiencies. And, you know, we have some, you know, people who have been on it for decades, literally, and have done fine. And like I said, you know, uh, similar to the um, heart disease, you know, insulin resistance, um, you know, question, it's interesting that you can go back in the medical literature and you can find the carnivore diet described, you know, the most famous probably description of it is from the 1920s, uh, an explorer by the name of Vilmer Stefferson, who was, uh, you know, with the Inuit uh, for a year and survived on or, or with the Inuit for an extended period of time. And he was on, you know, a carnivore diet there and he feels great. And he comes back to New York. Uh, and he starts eating, you know, the standard diet at the time, and he doesn't feel so great. So he says, 
maybe there's something to this. And he and one of his uh, uh, cohorts actually, you know, check themselves into Bellevue Hospital at the time in New York. And for one year, they did a monitored carnivore diet. They were getting their blood work checked. They were getting vital signs checked. Uh, the first like month or two, they were actually in the hospital, you know, all the time. And then they went back out into society, but they maintained the carnivore diet and they did great on it. Uh, and they showed all their blood markers and everything improving. So um, it's just one of those interesting things where you start to say, okay, what we've been told around food you know, may not be exactly correct. And maybe we don't need five to seven servings of vegetables a day. And maybe we don't need to be eating all this high sugar fruit. Uh, and, you know, maybe we don't need fiber uh, to survive. And uh, it just leads you again down that path of really questioning some of these basic assumptions uh, that we have been told are unquestionable in medicine. I, I, um, yeah, I must say, as you said, I always found this diet quite mysterious and, uh, in terms of like the approach and what to watch out for, but, uh, it's good to hear that, um, you know, your experience has gone okay. And, uh, I'm certainly interested in hearing more about it. Um, cause it seems to be, if anything, gaining momentum. So last thing, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate having you on the show. I really appreciate being able to share ideas and, and, you know, once again, chatting was very much a like-minded individual in terms of preventing people wanting, wanting to prevent people from seeing us in hospital. How do people get a hold of you? Tell us a little bit about uh, the book as well and uh, how people could connect. Yeah, sure thing. So the book is called Stay Off My Operating Table. It's uh, widely available, all the usual, you know, online sources. Uh, my website, ovadiahearthealth.com, O-V-A-D-I-A, hearthealth.com, has all the information about the um, the practice and, and the book and my podcast and all the other things that I'm doing. And social media wise, I'm most active over on Twitter. I'm at ifixhearts. Uh, so people can certainly come connect with me there. Um, I love getting, you know, direct messages from people. I respond to almost all of them as I can. And so I would encourage people to come find me there as well. My friend, this has been amazing. I can't wait to get this episode out. Motivating more folks to stay healthy and to, to get healthy and know that they can reverse their metabolic syndrome. I just, uh, just so proud of you, Phil. And uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation in the future as well. All right, Qualcomm Nation, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, or TikTok at Qualcast. Leave any comments at Qualcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. For real, we love you. Thanks for supporting the show. We're going to connect again real soon. Peace.